So we read uh, in the text of, uh, the, of God coming to uh, what is undoubtedly one of the most unlikely people uh, in the Old Testament for God to work through and meet and be a part of and use in redemption. And it's this man Gideon. And he comes to him in verse uh, 12 and says this, the Lord is with you. And uh, Gideon responds right away in a phrase that just basically says, I don't believe you. But he says, my presence is with you. So let's talk about this this morning. How, what, what is God's presence and how do you know you have it? Um, a quick definition, presence. How do you know you've been in the presence of somebody? Uh, if you've been in the presence of somebody, um, there's usually a reason for that presence. Um, if you've been in the presence of somebody, uh, you acknowledge their presence. Uh, often there's a particular posture uh, that's required of you to be in their presence. Uh, and if you've been in their presence for a while, you reflect their presence. Um, so ask yourself this question, uh, both individually and corporately. How do you know you've been in or seen the presence of God? Because it's actually sort of a, a big um, controversial conversation and debate uh, right now in our culture because uh, often, uh, especially in 2019 and 2018 leading into it, as these uh, political ethical um, conversations have continually arisen, uh, one of the things that's happening is people on both sides of the conversation uh, at times are doubling down on the reason that they're debating the side that they're debating is because the presence of God would support that ideology or that part of the argument. So how do you know you have the presence of God? How do you know God's presence is with you? There's three things in this text I think that you can, you can know and that can help you answer that question. One, the presence of God, you'll know always why he will come. Two, you'll know what he comes to do. And three, he will make you come to him in a certain particular way. Okay, so the presence of God. One, why he will come. We see uh, the presence of God and why he comes in the early part of this text in the way that God comes to Gideon. Uh, I'll give you the context of this um, to make it a little bit more familiar. Uh, every chapter uh, and every narrative in the book of Judges uh, begins this way. The people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes. So what happened is that uh, the people of Israel would live for foreign gods. They would live for themselves. They would do life in their own way. Then something bad would happen to them. Uh, some other foreign country would come to reign over them. And they would cry out for God's deliverance. He would come and send a judge to deliver them. And then they would immediately fall back in this pattern again. So they're in this pattern again where they're living for some of themselves. They're living for other gods. And the Midianites come to rule over them. And they cry out for help. And it's so bad that uh, this man Gideon, he's uh, sifting wheat in a wine press, which is sort of like a cellar. It's in the dark. It's in a hidden area. And the reason he's doing this is because if he goes out into the open and does this in public, uh, the Midianites will come and see what he's doing, and they'll just steal everything he's doing, and they'll rummage and plumage everything that they have. So it's real persecution. It's real fear. It's real dominion, and God comes to him and just says, I am with you, you mighty man of valor. And here's what you learn. There's nowhere in the text that Gideon cries out for God. There's nowhere in the text that Gideon asks for God to come. 
There's nowhere we're given a picture of Gideon's faithfulness, uh, a, a picture of Gideon pursuing God and begging and pleading with him to come. God just comes to this man who has no idea who he is, doesn't believe him, completely doubts him, will go on to test him, uh, will go on to show him idols living in his house, uh, will doubt every act of deliverance that is promised, will struggle to follow him, and yet God comes to this man in this moment in this way and says, I am with you and I will deliver you. And here's what you learn right away about God's presence. The reason God's presence will ever come into your life and come into a group of people is for no reason at all, except grace. And you learn that the reason God's presence ever comes anywhere is only because of grace. And this is really helpful for us to begin to evaluate because many of us fall into the same struggle that Gideon has. Um, What Gideon says earlier in the text is that when God comes to him and says, hey, I'm with you, I, uh, I will deliver you. Gideon says, I don't believe you because if you were with us, then none of these bad things around us would be happening. And what Gideon believes and what many of us struggle to believe about God's presence is that often the circumstances around our life reflect God's presence either close to us or far from us. Because deep within us, the way we think about God's presence is it's very much dependent on whether or not we've been faithful, whether or not we've been pursuing him, whether or not we've been um, alive to him. And if we have been, we, will th- we think his, pleas- his presence is close to us. But if we've been dark to him, whether we've been uh, cold spiritually or other problems have been going on in our life that have made us feel difficult uh, to, to pray or to read God's word, we think he's far from us. And often the bad things that are going on in our life or the good things that are going on in our life sometimes are unhelpful clues to whether he's close or far. And that's really dangerous because it can, it can do one of two things. It can either um, dangerously sink you or it can dangerously inflate you. See, some of you right now uh, have been going through a year where things have been really challenging personally or circumstantially. And what you've been doing at times is unnecessary self-condemnation and doubt. That if things are going difficult in our life, we often think, uh, why is God doing this to us? And what have I done to cause this to happen in my life? And we think God's favor and his presence in and around us uh, is, is far because things are not going well. And it's because I've not been faithful. And that can bring unnecessary spiritual depression. It can bring unnecessary spiritual condemnation. It can bring unnecessary uh, self-hate and loathing. But that's not ever why the things are going on in and around your life because of your unfaithfulness or not. But it's also dangerous to, it could dangerously inflate you. That is, some of you have had a life uh, that's been going very well this year or the past couple years, and you have to be careful as to not think, this is happening because of the way I think about the world or because I've been pursuing God in such a way, or because I've been so faithful and fervent with my faith that this is why God gives me the life I did. Because when you begin to think that, then you, what happens is it's very easy to look down on everybody else who's not thinking the same way you are, who's not living the same way you are, and who's not approaching God the same way that you are. And it's very difficult to relate to people who are going through hard times because you think the only reason that's happening 
is because their lack of fervor. But the presence of God, whether it be in these circumstances or those circumstances, is around us for one reason only, and that's because of grace. There was a podcast uh, my friend Matt Trexler, who's a pastor in Los Angeles, uh, sent me, and it told a story of a, uh, a couple um, who was dating. And one of the most trying parts of their dating relationship is the, for the guy's birthday, what he desperately wanted to do was to go skydiving. And he was incredibly excited about going skydiving, and his girlfriend was not. So they had this long conversation about their hobbies and interests. And he uh, strongly... <laughs> almost coerced her into going with, her, with him to go skydiving. And so she was not very excited, but he was very excited. And they get there to the plane, and the guy says, okay, here's the deal. We have a rule. If you get on the plane, you have to jump. So if you get cold feet and you don't want to jump, you still have to go. So if you don't want to go, you need to figure that out right now. Because once you're on, you're going. So he looks at her and says, you got it? You going? And she's like, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. So they get on the plane, and as it gets up into the air 10,000 feet, he's out of his skin excited, and she's about to vomit. And so it comes to the point of the time it's for them to jump, and they open the door, and the guy is so excited, he just jumps out right away. When he jumps, the girl just freaks out. She jumps to the back of the plane. She's, like, holding onto the handles, screaming bloody murder. She's almost crying. She can't take it, but she's strapped to somebody who's much bigger than her. So he just walks to the front of the plane while she's screaming and flailing about, and he just jumps. And she, the whole way down, ah, just terror the whole way down. And he's going down, going, this is the greatest moment of my life. And here's the point. They both land safely. And his excitement over it, and his thrill of the moment, in no way made him safer. And her terror and her fear and her screaming in no way made her more dangerous. Why? Because they were strapped to somebody who knew what they were doing. Listen, the presence of God is never conditional on whether or not you're excited or whether or not you're terrified and fearful of God, what God is doing in your life. It's always true and real in your life for one reason and one reason only. His grace. That's why he will come. That's why he will be present with people. So if you want to know somebody who has the presence of God, it's not just because circumstances are going well in their life. It's somebody who gets grace, who thinks the song of their life is that they are a sinner in desperate need of a God who will come into them and invade their life for one reason and one reason only. Why? Because he is a merciful, loving, gracious God. That's why he will come. Secondly, you can know the presence of God because of what he will do in your life. Um, again, we see this in verse 13. But uh, Gideon says, uh, after God says, I'm with you, he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord were with us, why has all this happened to us? See, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He's saying, if you were with us, Lord, what you would do is you would do something like the Exodus. You would get us out of this mess. You would deliver us from slavery. You would, you would make life better. And then the living God says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength 
that you go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And it's as if God is saying, oh, if you think my presence is just about just getting you out of these circumstances, oh child, you're greatly, you're greatly mistaken. See, I'm not going to come here just for your circumstances, but I'm going to come here for you. So here's what happens next in the text. God tells Gideon what's going to happen, that he's going to deliver him. But he says, but first and foremost, before we go into and I deliver you, those idols in your front yard that your father has and that you have, that you're depending on for daily life, for commerce, for farming, for good weather, for everything, those have got to come down. And we got to deal with particular things that are going on in your life before I deal with the things that are going on outside of your life. And here's what we secondly learn about the presence of God. When he comes into your life, often the circumstances that we beg for it is because something externally like Gideon and the Israelites is happening to us. And we long for him to come and make the circumstances better. But you can know the presence of God is actually in your life and in and around you. Because what he will do is he won't just come after your circumstances, but he will come after the person that's in the middle of the circumstances. See, when things are going bad in our life, what we want is his presence to care more about what's going outside of us than what's going on inside of us in the midst of the circumstances. And what Gideon is learning here is that God is more concerned with what is going on inside of him than around him. It's as if God is saying, Gideon, before I heal the circumstances for you, I've got to heal you for the circumstances. Now, some of us, whether we're uh, new to the faith or um, circumstances are hard in our life right now, or maybe we're not a a Christian, uh, hear that and think, this is the part of God that I'm so averse to. How can can he know what's going on in my life and not care? And care more about something that's going on inside me that can wait and we can deal with later than this thing in front of me that is so dominant and is so pertinent. I mean, isn't that mean and uncaring? Because if he cares more about just what's going on inside me, I don't know if I want that presence. Um. You know, it's, it's been almost a month. Uh, have you seen or taken your kids to see a Toy Story 4 yet? Um, if you haven't, you should. You should. I'm not going to spoil the movie for you. I promise. But um, there's a great scene in the movie where uh, one of the main characters, her name is uh, Gabby Gabby. She's a, a doll who uh, was lost and put in an old antique store. And nobody will take her and nobody wants her because her little voice box in the back of her uh, won't work properly. And so she thinks this is the reason that nobody will love me and care me, care for me. So she meets um, Woody, you know, Tom Hanks's character, and he's got a perfectly working, working uh, voice box. And so she desperately wants his box. And she says, if I can get that box, then a child will want me, and then I'll be loved. And then everything will be okay. And then I'll finally fulfill my purpose.
So a lot of the movies, she's trying to steal his box, and she ev eventually gets the box. And it, this sort of scene builds with her sitting there, and her, she pulls her own string, and a little girl notices and hears the voice uh, say something. And so she goes over to this doll, and she pulls the string, and the doll says, Hi, I'm Gabby Gabby. I want to be your friend. And you're sort of built up at this moment, like her, her dreams are about to come true. And the little girl hears that voice, looks at her, and goes, Eh, and throws it in the box. In the movie theater that we were in, there was an audible gasp. And what happens is then that doll sort of lays there in more loneliness, in more emptiness, and in more pain than she was before. Here's what God is saying to Gideon. I'm not going to set you up for something like that. Where the Midianites are just sent away, and you're delivered, thinking this will be peace, this will be redemption, this will be healing, and you're more miserable, and you're more in slavery, and you're more entrenched in pain in your own self-idolatry than you even knew you were before. See, salvation has got to come within before it comes on the outside. And Gideon's learning there's two problems in my life. There's my idols, and there's the Midianites. And all of us think the external Midianites are more pressing than the idols. But what God is saying is, oh, Gideon, we've got to deal with this more, more intensely than we ever deal with the Midianites outside of us. There's a place where Jesus sort of talks about this in Luke 21, where he says this when he's teaching on the end times. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is usually not the most joyful morning devotion you have. But then Jesus says this, but not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. So th this is astonishing teaching. He's saying, um, uh, you will be killed, but nothing will happen to you. The worst things in the world can happen to you, but I will protect you the whole way. Now, what, what in the world, how can he say this? Because here's what Jesus is, is teaching us. There's a you, and then there's a real you. See, there's a you that you have convinced all of us in this room that's who you are and what your life is about and uh, your personality is likable or not likable in this way. But then there's a real you that's ruled and reigned uh, in submitting to particular things in this world that tell you who you are, that tell you your purpose in this world, and tell you where you're going. And the reality is, those things that we give our life to, those can be taken away in a heartbeat. And anything in this world can hurt it. But the real you, what Jesus is saying, is if you give that to me, if you let me have a hold of you, the real you, the heart of who you are, nothing can happen to you. No one can hurt you. Nothing can be taken away. And the real you, your soul, when anything in this world attacks it, it's only being given back to you. To possess forever with me. I'll tell you a woman who, who sort of discovered this. Her name was Helen Roosevelt. Uh, she was a British missionary to the, uh, the Belgian Congo. 
And when she was about uh, 21 years old, she was, I think it was at like a, um, an InterVarsity conference with like John Stott speaking. And uh, she was challenged to, uh, by the needs of, of the gospel around the world and uh, the incredible, uh, just unchurched parts of Africa. So she moved to the Belgian Congo and there she helped start a school, she helped start a hospital, she helped start a church to go and uh, minister and save all, just this unreached part of the world. And there were incredible things happening uh, until 1964 in the uprising of the Belgian Congo when her little town was ransacked and they burnt down the school and they burnt down the church and they tore down the hospital and they took women out into the middle of the town and began to assault them. And she said, in the middle of all this attack, while her teeth were gritted and she's wondering, how are you doing this, God? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? She said it hit her like a thousand bricks. And she realized, here's what's happening. All of this, this church that I did, this school that I did, this was all for me. That this was my way of creating and building my own perfect life and a way to build a life that everybody would admire me and everyone would think I'd gone to do something amazing for God. And in that moment, when everything was torn down, she said, I realized God did not bring me here to the Belgian Congo to save all these people. He brought me here to save me. And in that moment, she got her soul back. See, the presence of God, when it comes into your life and it comes into a people, it won't just be about improved circumstances. You will know it's real and you will know it's present when the people in the midst of the circumstances are realizing incredible internal change. And they're realizing not just they're being delivered from something, but they themselves are being delivered. And so what God will want to do is he will want to come and deal with you as a person in the midst of the circumstances so that you can be somebody who can handle any circumstance. The way you know the presence of God is, one, why he will come, two, how he will come, but thirdly, how you will finally meet him. Because he will make you meet him in a particular way. And here's how God makes Gideon meet him. We sort of see three pictures of this. Um, that God comes uh, to Gideon and says, hey, I want you uh, to be the man to deliver Israel. And Gideon says, uh, you know, how can I do this, uh, Lord? My clan, this is verse 15. He goes, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Basically, uh, I'm the, the poorest and the lowliest and the poorest and lowliest family in Israel. How, why in the world would you choose me? Uh, and then again, in chapter 7, when uh, God prepares Israel and his army, and he says, okay, uh, we're gonna, you're going to go out in the Midianites, and, and Gideon's got this army with 32,000 people, and God says, it's too many. And so ask anybody who's afraid to leave. And of the 32,000, <laughs> 22,000 say, me, I'm too afraid. And they all go home. And then there's 10,000 left, and God says, it's still too many. So he says, take everybody to the water, and anybody who drinks uh, like a dog, uh, send them home. And I don't think that that text is, is communicating anything other than it was just a natural way of God saying, how can we narrow this down to a comical low number? 
to where there's an amount that nobody would ever think that this battle is possible to win. So only 300 people go with Gideon into this battle. And so they go into this battle with a comical amount of a number, and they show up, and Gideon says, here's your weapons. He gives them a jar, a clay jar, with a, with a light in it and a trumpet. He says, this is how we're going to win the battle. And all of those three things communicate the same thing. That the way Gideon is going to meet God, and the way he's going to be in the midst of his presence, and the way that you're going to be in the midst of his presence, is only in weakness. See, the way God's presence is always met, tasted, and experienced is always in the weakest parts of our life. And the reason that, these, that this number is the way it is, 300, and the reason that these weapons are the way they are is to show salvation is from nothing else but from the Lord. See, for us this morning, if God's presence for you feels stale, like if, if you've been going through 2019 feeling distant from God, uh, not sure where you are with your faith, the reason that's happening is because you're doing what I do all the time, which is we lean into our strengths. This is the American life. Find your strengths and lean into them. Find out what you're good at, what you're admirable about. Market it. Make sure everybody knows you about it. Hide it when it's not doing really very well. Lie about it when it's not possible. And make sure that's the way life is worked on. And really, you can do this in, in one of two ways. Um, you can do that by uh, going out into the world, into the culture, and finding something that you know will give you an identity, that you know will give you praise, and giving all of your time and resources to that. Or you can lean into your strengths by coming into something like this, the church, and being very, very good, where you're so busy and you're doing everything leadership in the church, and you're pouring yourself into the point where, just like out there, nobody thinks you have a weakness. And there is an incredible danger and irony into this. See, if you lean into your strengths, the danger is that you can mistake God's presence for your strengths and your gifts. There are hundreds of testimonies of God using gifted people in the midst of history, in the Bible, who never really had his presence. And just because something incredible is happening around you does not automatically equate to God being with you. And one of the dangers about leaning into your strengths is that we never ask that question. And we're never fooled by that. Because we lean into him in a way and thinking, well, he clearly is with me because he's working. But there's also a real irony of this, is that if you lean into your strengths, that's the greatest weakness in your life right now. Because it keeps you from a God who welcomes and wants your weaknesses. See, God is with Gideon, not in spite of his weaknesses, but because of his weaknesses. J.K. Rowling um, was the commencement speaker, uh, I think 10 years ago at Harvard, right after um, her last book came out. 
And her title of her lecture to Harvard students was The Benefits of Failure. She said this. She said, I was sitting in a similar seat that you are right now, graduating from Exeter University, and I had a knack for passing exams. And for years, that had been the measure of success in my life. A mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless. I was a single parent, as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. My parents' fears for me that I had, and I had for myself as well, they all came to pass. And by every standard in the world, I was a humongous failure. So why is failure a benefit? Listen to this. Because failure was stripping away of the inessentials of life. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive, still had a daughter whom I adored. And I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation which I built my life. She's saying failure and weakness, what it did is it stripped away all of life and it said, what is essential? What are the circumstances that I that need to be dealt with with me? What matters the most? And it's salvation from the Lord. It's salvation not from your job, not from your personality, not from your reputation. It's from the Lord. And when it's most clear to us is in the midst of weaknesses. So how, how can you lean into your weakness? Well, these, I mean, just look at the clues in the text. Um, how do they win this battle? They win it through weapons that no one would ever consider a weapon. If, you're, if you have a dispute with somebody, it's pretty clear to us uh, how you win that dispute in this world. Shame works. Uh, manipulation works. Uh, framing, black, you know, blackmailing people works. But when you think about uh, humility, forgiveness, losing, those are all ways that we think you lose your life. You lose what's most precious to you in this world. But through the presence of God, what it does is it trains you to begin to think and realize and live that that's how you win the battle. That's where God's presence is. Is when you're, you're in the midst of a battle and what you do is you choose the weapons of the gospel. That, are, that make no sense anywhere in the world. They, 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 they seem to win nothing, but it heals everything. The, uh, how do you lean into your weaknesses? The numbers. Uh, I think one of the ways to think about the 300 is just that the insignificance of it. I mean, some of you, I've, I've talked to people in churches before who say this, I can't ever be a leader. Uh, like I, I just don't read enough books or I don't know very much. Or if you knew what I was battling, uh, you, you would, I'm just not that kind of leadership material. That's probably who should be a leader. Look, if you're somebody right now who considers yourself insignificant in the church, uh, to not know enough, what this text is teaching you and telling you is you probably need to put yourself in a place, in a situation where God can use you for healing. Because the only way God comes in the midst of us and to meet us is in our weakness and through the weak people in and around us. If you want the presence of God and if you want to know it, 
It's in your weakness, and it's in weakness in and around you. I'll close with this, because that's sort of scary, right? Because there's not many of us that want to leave this room and go leaning into our weaknesses of life. So how do we find assurance and courage to do that? Well, here's the thing. Gideon was told he had the presence of God, but you have something better. You have a true and better Gideon in Jesus. See, Gideon says, how in the world can you use me, God? I'm from the weakest and the poorest family in Israel. When Jesus came along and people started to notice that God was going to use him, Nathaniel said to Philip, can, can, he's from where? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And who, who from there is of any significance? When Gideon goes into battle, he goes into the battle of his life with only 300 people, abandoned by almost 31,000 people. But Jesus goes into the battle of his life on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, abandoned by everybody, totally alone. And then Gideon goes and fights a battle with the most unheard of upside-down weapons ever, jars of clay, lanterns, and a trumpet. And then Jesus goes and fights the ultimate battle against sin and death with the most unlikely heard of weapon ever, the cross. But the major difference is is that Gideon goes into that battle with the presence of God. And in the heart of Jesus' battle, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he lost the presence of God, which tells you in your weakness you are guaranteed the loving presence of God because Jesus, in the midst, in the highest part of his weakness, he lost that presence so that you can live a life leaning into your weakness, knowing him always surrounded with his presence so that Paul calls the Christian life now living with with that treasure in jars of clay so that everybody knows around you that that surpassing power is from God and not from you. I'll close with this question from Charles Spurgeon. Ask yourself this. Spurgeon said, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks only for your weakness, for he has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weaknesses and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Oh, don't you want the presence of God? Receive it in your weakness. Meet Jesus that way. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, that you would use somebody as foolish and small and lowly as Gideon in such a teeny way. Would you, Lord... um, Use us this way. I pray for the weakest person in this room that they would know your presence, Lord, uh, is a way to do the most significant things in Santa Barbara. Lord, use this church out of its weakness to bring your presence to this town. In Jesus' name, amen.